Hello. Hello, I'm Georgia. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. Mmm. Comfort Films Podcast. Season 2. Hello everybody and welcome to the Comfort Films Podcast. This is episode 72. The Godfather came out in 1972. How do you like that coincidence? That's a good one. Yeah, right? And it also came out on March 24th, 1972, which means we are upon the 51st anniversary of this movie, which makes it really old. It makes it older than us, and we're very old. So, I mean, that makes me feel good about myself, because when I'm like, you know, you're really getting up there. You got another birthday around the corner. I'm not 51. You know, the Godfather will always be older than us. <laughs> yes, it will be. Yeah, so that's something I got going for me, and something got going for you, too. Yeah, but unfortunately, I think it is a bigger part of the culture than us. Oh, shit. I mean, I was really hoping... <laughs> Hoping that we would break through, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> when we talked about getting into our closet and just recording some video, recording some audio, I just really thought it would just open up the world stage for us. We're like, we're going to be bigger than the Godfather. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that. <laughs> I mean, I have so many days where I just feel like, you know, I could be Sonny Corleone. Oh, I feel like you could be too some days. <laughs> That's horrible. And I feel like I could be Michael, which is worse. I I mean, I don't really know. I don't really know. I mean, I have to say that, like, beating someone up with a trash can is is really impressive. But I think also we both, you know, have have a little of the old Fredo going on sometimes, too. Yeah, I got the Fredo. Some days you feel like a Fredo, but... It's You see, you know what kills me with Fredo is I like Fredo. But then, you know, Fredo, you can't like him anymore because of what happens. But you feel bad That's for him. That's not in this movie, so... No, no, it's not in this movie. But you just, you know. I kind of feel like the first two films, though they are separate, are one. Because yeah. when we were watching this film, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, no, not yet. You know, <laughs> so it was like, we had all those things. Yeah, big setups in this one at the end. Like, the last third of this movie is pretty much a setup for the next movie it gets you going and it's well and also this brings us back to our last episode dog day afternoon okay when we have the bank robbery al pacino has this really funny scene where he like fumbles getting the rifle out of the roses box right yeah Guns and Roses, by the way, um, you know, and like Terminator, Terminator 2. Too. Yes. Thank you. So when he fumbles getting the rifle out of the box and it's so goofy and it's just something that happened in that moment that they caught on film. I feel like in this, we actually see that with Fredo, you know, when the father is shot, when the Don is shot, you know, Fredo tries to get his pistol out and, you know, do his part. Oh, boy. But he really, really bungles it. And he it's just drops it. Oh, and just. Yeah, I would definitely do that. I mean, I was just trying to make breakfast this morning, and I dropped no less than, like, six things on the ground, (laughs) including, like, an egg just exploded. Yeah, it's a Fredo kind of a morning for me today when I was making breakfast. I had a morning where I was looking at uh, the menu for coffee. And uh, I was looking way to my right, and I'm like, wow, that menu's really far away. When the barista said to me, you know, there's actually a menu directly in front of you. <laughs> Fredo. Yeah, it was, it was total Fredo, you know? And, and yeah. Fredo just, it kind of sounds like fried egg. Do you, do you get that? So it's like there's a breakfast element in there. That's, like You love breakfast, so that was probably your appeal. That's why he appeals to you so much. Yeah, give me a grande Fredo. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think more about like a semi-fredo, which is like a frozen dessert. The semi-fredo. Yeah. I'd like a semi-fredo with a pinafore, please. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but it's funny, like, because there are, like, these uh, iconic characters in this, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, People have just, like, made fun of, like, the Brando bulldog face for forever. Mm-hmm. You, like, try to make your mom and dad do that. I remember one time they didn't really want to cooperate. No, they didn't. They really hated it. But My when they finally it did it, it was front. hilarious. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they should have just done it. Come on. I don't know why that was so bad. But yeah, no, I totally remember that. We were just like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. But yeah, and I think that like, it's kind of interesting the way that the brothers are because they're all so distinctly different. Mm. And yeah, do you think that you can like pick which one you're most like, you know, even though we have our awkward Fredo-ness, you know, you kind of have like that fiery, temperamental, like sunny thing. Yeah, like sometimes I like to write messages on the door of the kitchen cabinet. You <laughs> You've know, never I like to be really. Thankfully. I I mean, I, I always look at them like, why the hell did you do that? Like, it takes so long to get a kitchen clean, and then you just wrote on the cabinet door. I mean, I guess it's to show you know that Sonny really is just kind of like animalistic. You but know, he's, he's in just the like, moment. Yeah, but he's wild. He is fully untamed. He's undomesticated, and that's what we really you know, stress with this character. This is a person that does not have uh, the ability to logic something out. He's pure emotion. Yeah, he's and, instinctual. He's yeah. like, and he also is like fiercely protective, which I think is another animalistic kind of a thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, when he hears from Connie what happened mm. with Carla, he doesn't even care what's happened. He doesn't care that he's under protection. He just has to leave right then because it's like he has to defend his family. Yeah. You know, and I do think you have that kind of streak of like being protective and, you know, being passionate. Sonny's very passionate about things. And yes, I mean, we've had other people guest on the show and talk about me being like a kind of a cold and horrible person. <laughs> I, hey, you're in no way a cold and horrible person. No, but I, I am mean... calculated. Like, Michael is very calculated. Michael is, like, ready to take charge at all times, which I am, too, because I'm a super control freak, right? So, you know, I do feel like the deliberateness of Michael I relate to more. And also, I always end up being the person who becomes responsible for everything, regardless of how much I don't want that. Sure. And that's very Michael, you know, so. Well, I also feel like that you can, like, break down your life into different sections. Like, for instance, w- with these characters, right? So, for instance, I'm a sports Fredo. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you don't want to put me on your team really no. for anything. Like, Really me either. It's not good. Well, you know, when I was younger, I think the bowling, you know, the bowling was was all right. You know what I mean? But, I, I mean, generally speaking, I, I'm what you would call a sports Fredo. I, I would say, you know, if you talk to me about, for instance, where to go and get the best pancakes in Los Angeles, I'm a Michael Pancakes. You yes, know what I mean? Yes, for sure. You've got real opinions. Yeah. They're very organized and based on like a, a system that only you were aware of internally. Mm-hmm. I fully agree. But I would say, you know, with coffee, despite my performance this morning when I wasn't awake and didn't see the menu, I would say I'm a a coffee sunny. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like I know if it's good or if it isn't good. You know, you're going to get 
real pissed. Yeah. Okay. I, but again, I mean, I, I try to bring in the Michael there as well and, and you know, bring it down. Because you can't just, like, blast the person <laughs> that's making coffee for you. You know, that's like a very sacred position, you know. And if you have someone that's, like, super reliable, you know, and you're a real jerk to them, I mean, let's be honest. Why would you ever make good coffee for that person again? <laughs> You know? Yeah, no, you don't want that. But no. I'm I'm also a sports Fredo. I'm an automotive repair Fredo. Oh yes. Uh, I have literally dropped things into the car engine compartment while <laughs> trying to fix it. I remember that. Uh, my phone being one of those. It's like trapped in the wheel well because I managed to drop it through like a one inch slot <laughs> that was you know a tiny little slot. My phone bloop right in there. I did it. It was a real Fredo move on my part. But, like, generally, I'm a Michael. But, you know, once I get pushed to a certain point, I become a Sunny, like a hardcore Sunny. Mm. And, like, nobody wants to be around for that. Like a hand biting, trash can beating Sunny. <laughs> nobody wants to be there for that. I think what people really want to be around me is like a deals. Like I'm like a, a Black Friday, Michael. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I know exactly where to go to get the best deal and I will talk to you about it. I remember a long time ago, I used to go into stores and try to find something that was slightly damaged and I'd get someone to speak to and I'd say, what can we do about this? You You're know, like a Spotify playlist, Michael. Mm, I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's just, I love this. Like, this just opens up, like, a whole new Myers-Briggs kind of situation, you know? I love personality tests. No wonder I love this game. I mean, we haven't talked about Tom Hagen either. And although Tom he's, Hagen. you know, although he's not a blood relative brother. And they don't let you forget that either. Boy, do they ride no, that they up don't. his ass. Oh, he's, my God. <laughs> he's still part of the family. I feel like he's a good, you know, he's, like, a good version of a brother. He's kind of like, you know, in the vampire movies, they'll have like a familiar. That's like Tom Hagen, but he's like the best familiar. You yeah. know, it's like, ah, oh, Tom Hagen. You know, you just feel bad for him because yeah. you always feel like they're taking a dump on him. He because... doesn't quite fit in, but they depend yeah. on him intensely. Yes. Again, I feel like I got a little of that Tom Hagen energy in yeah. my life pretty much at all times as well. Yeah. So maybe I'm even more of a Hagen than a Michael. Hagen, I'm not that hmm. ruthless. I'm not quite as ruthless. Well, what about Dawn? Are you like the Dawn? You know, no, I don't think I am. Although, I think part of that is because we see him again. I'm not talking about The Godfather Part Two. I'm only trying to talk about this movie. Sure, yeah. Where we see like middle-aged to elderly Dawn. Yeah. And he is kind of past the point, I think, of having, like, this extreme behavior, you know? In this movie, he is in the twilight of his life. For the great majority of the movie, he's kind of almost disabled, you know, because he has these injuries from the shooting and everything like that. And he also seems, like, really just tired of it. And in that respect... Yes, I'm very much like the Don because I feel like I've had enough and I'm very much ready to take a break. And the Don is too. He's just like, could I not talk to all these people for a little while and just go to the wedding? That would be great. Yeah, Vito Corleone really is a guy that does deserve a break. 
You know, I, there was a bar in Long Island that was actually called You Need a Rest. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if, like, Vito Corleone, you know, had some money in that bar. Because he, he does need a rest. You know, from the beginning, from the beginning, from our opening shot, right? What do we see? We see The Undertaker asking for a favor. And they have that zoom out from ah, him. Such a good scene. Such a good opening. Yeah. Well, and they said that at the time to do that zoom out, they needed a computer. They needed this high tech equipment. Yeah, they did like a, it was it was really interesting. We listened to this uh, co commentary by Francis Ford Coppola. And he talked about using like a digital zoom lens for that, which he thought was like high tech stuff Yeah. at the time. So they like set the timer and then it automatically does this long zoom out. And it looks amazing. It's crazy. It, it's crazy when you think, like, of all the things that we take for granted now. You know, things as simple as, like, taking a picture on your telephone, and it looks great. Like, it was so hard to get good pictures. Like, Even, like, five years ago, I, you had to have a whole rig. Right? You, yeah. you needed something. Now it's just like anybody can do it. You can be, like, a photography Fredo and still win. <laughs> exactly. You know? And so it's I, I, I appreciate that. You know, so it's something where I have to say that, yeah, for the beginning of this movie, it is something different. And it was because um, Coppola was told, let's go for something different than just starting at the wedding. Give us something to bring us in. And I feel like that scene does a fantastic job of putting us in the mind of the Corleone family because it is business first. Yes. You know, it is about family and they do want to protect their family. But really, when you get down to it, it is business first all the time. You take a look at what Vito Corleone does later, says, I will not try to avenge my son Santino's death. Jesus. Well, you know? he says he says Santino was a bad Don. Yeah, yeah, also, he does. I mean, he's like, he admits it because again, and this is multiple times said throughout, it's nothing personal. This is just business. Yep. You know, I, th I can think of at least two times, I think, when they, when somebody literally says that phrase. And, you know, I think it's such a brilliant opening because you know, he was going to start with the wedding, like you say, but then his friend, I guess, was like, hey, you should do something else. Yeah. And so he goes with this monologue by this great actor. Oh, my God. He's so good. Who uh, really wasn't represented or anything. I think they found him at an open call. And I can't believe that. And they did the same thing with Abe Vigoda. Unreal. I mean, oh, my God. Like, Abe Vigoda is a guy that it's like I instantly think that this man had a career. Because I remember him in Barney Miller. I've seen him in a million things growing Since up. Since we were kids. Yeah. 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 And this was a guy that was found on an open call, no representation. I mean, wow. Unbelievable. I mean, that was so cool, too. Because Coppola, like, really talked about how he loved doing that because he would find these great guys. And... You know, this this Undertaker is one of those people, and Abe Vigoda as well. But what I was struck by, by having this be the opening, is that it really sets the stage that we're talking about kind of a an insular kind of a group of people who have their own rules. Because this Undertaker doesn't really belong to that. You know, he has always depended on the law, like the law, the the government, the country that he lives in. And he says he tried to raise his daughter in the American way. You know, he's really tried, even though he is an Italian guy, to be part of the American culture. But something has happened where he can't depend on that in this situation. 
And, you know, his daughter was attacked by these guys. He couldn't get justice. Yeah. And he's come to the Godfather to ask for justice. But he doesn't even know how to do that. Like, he's kind of chastised about it. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you you come to me, you know, on the day of my daughter's wedding when I can't refuse anything, yet you don't want to be my friend. You know, there's no time that you've ever been like, let's hang out and crack some brewskis. I mean, that's, you know, not a direct quote from the film. <laughs> Film, but, you know, that's the general vibe of the film. And, you know, it's like this undertaker is ready to do whatever he needs to do to get justice for his daughter. And it's a very difficult monologue that he has to deliver. And he does it in such a beautiful way because you can feel you can really feel the pain of this horrible story. But he's keeping it together. He is he's being this man of honor you know, and we see that throughout this film that, you know, these men have a real sense of pride and they want to not cry. I mean, hell, I remember growing up, you know, not crying was a thing. You know what I mean? It was like I was conditioned not to cry. Well, you know what I mean? Well, there's a big masculinity theme going on in this movie. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the fact that we start with like a story about violence against women mm-hmm. is just like... All right, I see where we're headed here. And yeah. we do pretty much have some really horrendous violence against women in this movie um, several times. Yeah. Uh, I think about Apollonia, and I think about, obviously, that horrible scene with Connie and Carlo. The, the Connie and Carlo scene is particularly terrifying. I, I mean, I feel that the actor that plays Carlo is able to bring in the most evil directed rage and i really feel that things oh god it's very personal yes yes it is very personal it is very directed and it's like he is going to destroy her and you know the very last shot when she goes into the other room and then he kicks open the door that has the mirror on it then we see the door kind of swing and then we just hear the screaming and the crying and you're like oh jesus fucking christ like you don't even want to know but it, it it's it shows you how well the film is made because even though we are not seeing the violence our mind is making up something much worse than than what what really ever could be happening and what we were seeing was horrendous that was beyond anything you know, I could deal with, you yeah. know, and it, it, we watched the film twice and both times I was like, oh, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Connie's nuts. Oh, okay? yeah. I yeah. mean, we want to say that, too. But like, you know, the way that she's treated by this husband is horrific. And, you know, the first time, like, we see that she's been beaten, like, she's got bruises all over her face. And it's uh, and of course, Connie is played by. Tally Shire, right? who's Francis Ford Coppola's actual sister. Well, and that brings in a whole thing with this film, which is Francis Ford Coppola really made this a family affair. He has so many of his family members participating in the film. He has people at the wedding. His father, Carmine Coppola, did some music. You actually see him playing the piano in a montage scene, which is so great. <laughs> he has it. like a revolver, you know, strapped <laughs> to him, but it's so good, you know? And it's like with this actual scene, this horribly scary scene with Talia Shire, what undercut it is like we, we saw, you know, the, the artifice of it because Francis Ford Coppola talked about the fact that they were actually going to bring in an action director to direct the scene. And he did not want that to happen. So what he did is he got his sister Talia and he went there with his son, 
Was it his son? Yeah, Gio. He went there with his son. And, you know, what happened is they, they blocked the scene. They worked the scene. And Gio played the Carlo part. <laughs> he was hitting his yeah. aunt with a belt. Jesus. And yeah, all they... this kind of stuff. Like, you know, I'm sure it wasn't, like, terribly hard or anything. But, like, that's how they blocked it out. It was kind of an amazing story. A little bit crazy. Right. Well, it was. It, but it kind of, like, it, it brought humor to something that was so dark and horrible. And, you know, they said that what happened is they did this over the weekend. On Monday, they showed it to the actor that played Carlo. He picked it up. And what he was doing was what Gio was doing. Yeah. Which is, which is just like, wow. You know, it's this is a film where Francis Ford Coppola would never give up. You know, it was very interesting how he was not seen as really an accomplished director at this point. They saw him as a kid. The crew didn't respect him. He was in the bathroom and he heard people talking about how literally they said he was an asshole. He didn't know anything. You know, it yeah. was like there were production people on the shoot that just didn't want to listen to him. They kept wanting to cut down the days. They and, wanted to fire him. Yeah. You know, for the whole first week, they wanted to fire him, and they were just telling him he wasn't doing anything good. And the story that I loved that we heard in the commentary is that, like, the day before he expected to be fired, he ended up firing, like, five people <laughs> who he felt were, like, against him the most, including, right. like, assistant director or whatever. So, you know, he, like, took a... <laughs> A proactive approach to trying to rid himself of these negative people so, you know, he could shoot as much as he could and try to make himself not disposable. Um, and, of course, it worked out. But, you know, it's so interesting to me to hear all of the hardships that he experienced with this because, like you said, we think of him because of this movie and right. others afterwards. As like a huge director. We never think that, you know, this guy had to experience such a challenge to make this film. But he did, like over and over. And I think that probably my kind of assumption is having his family there, you know, working with him kind of helped him to cope with the stress a little bit. Because you can tell he's so close to the family. Oh, yeah. And I mean, with the casting of Talia Shire... He wasn't sure that he wanted her for the part. He he didn't feel that she looked right, but he thought he was going to get fired. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to cast her. So if I lose the job, <laughs> at least she's, she's got it. Right. She's still got it. So, I mean, yeah, he had that, you know, right there with him. And I, I can't believe that the studio hated Al Pacino so much. You know, this is the guy that we're talking about you know, as being the best, you know, in this performance, what he delivers, the transformation of Michael Corleone over the course of the Godfather trilogy. Yeah. Incredible, incredible, incredible. And it's it's just fully realized. You see every little step that he's taking. And, you know, with Michael Corleone, it's not showy. That anger is inside, you know, and you can see, you know, in the film with how everything is is stripped from him you yeah. know and pacino really plays that you know once again he is a veteran just like in dog day afternoon you know and he does not you know come home to the greatest of places no and i mean the whole thing and we hear this in that great scene with brando and pacino late in the film is that you know this isn't what they wanted for him this isn't what michael wanted for himself and it isn't what Vito wanted for michael no you know he wanted michael to be a senator or a governor or something like this of course he could help them you know 
through his power, but he didn't want him to have to do this violence, you know? And, you know, unfortunately, just the way it came out, it had to happen because he's, you know, he says, like, I expected that for Santino. And then he starts talking about Fredo. And he's like, and Fredo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even want to say it. I remember we were watching, you're like, yeah, he doesn't even want to go on there. And it, it's just, again, it shows you how hard it is with Fredo and how, how low everyone's opinion is of him. Yeah. You know, and the scene that we see in Las Vegas where he's all dressed up, he's so happy that Michael is there and he has the band, he has the women, he's got Johnny Fontaine and there's going to be a party. Yeah, he's like oh. playing the big shot. He thinks he's a big shot out there. But, you know, the immediate thing that happens is that Michael undercuts that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it just takes all the wind out of his sails and it's 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 a bummer for us because we love John Cazale. Uh, John Cazale. Okay, so this is their first on-screen pairing. This is the first time that we saw these two guys who did all this theater together coming together on screen. And, you know, the part of Fredo, you know, you don't think about in the first film how small that part actually is. It's very minimal. Yeah, but what Cazal does is so memorable. He gives you such an impression and a fully realized character that, you know, when you get to the second part and you get a lot more, you're just like, all right, here it is. You know, even though you know Fredo's story is not going to end well, you can sense that from the beginning. Yeah, just from the first time you really see him. Well, the first time we see him, I believe, unless I'm mistaken, is when he comes over to Michael and Kay's table um, at the wedding, and he's kind of hammered <laughs> already. And, you know, he just seems like kind of the, the clown of the yes. family. Yes, he that that is the impression that you get from him. And even when you see him in Las Vegas, he is dressed up as a big shot. He's got the sunglasses, the suit. He's got the shirt open with the collar, you know. But again, he does look like a clown. He's got these these kind of bright, goofy colors. He doesn't really understand how he's supposed to act, you know. And and again, he really, you know, again, it, it's a second film thing. But he is very upset. You know, that he is the oldest son and yeah. nobody cares. Well, nobody at that cares. point, because Santino's gone, yeah. But like, and he doesn't, you know, feel like he's taken seriously no. because he's not. I mean, no. and then when Michael is telling him what to do, he doesn't even accept Michael is, is in charge now. He tries to go over his head, not realizing there is no over his head. Oh, You know, yeah. but he goes to Tom, like Tom is going to appeal to Vito for him, but... It, you know, they're not, they're not the top. Michael's the top now. Yeah, Tom doesn't want any part of that shit. Nah, you know, no. he comes right over and it's like, Tom, what can you do? Can we do this? Can we do that? And, and again, this is Pacino really, really delivering some stone cold business to his brother. You know, in the way he just, he inhales the smoke, he blows it out and he inhales it and he just looks over and he goes, you're my brother and I love you, but don't ever go against the family in public like that again. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, right there, like this has been set up. Oh, you know, yeah, big time, big you, time. You know, and it's like he sided, Fredo sided with Mo Green. And Mo Green, you know, this is also why it's so sad with Fredo. Mo Green doesn't think that Fredo is worth shit. He doesn't think Fredo is worth shit at all. He, like, slapped him around in public. You know he treated him like complete trash. Yeah, but Fredo, for some reason, is still out here sticking up for him. I guess it's he thinks that he's going to have something else. He's going to have something to bring to the table. Like, he has the inside track on Mo Green. He knows what's 
I don't know. He wants something. He well, wants to be an expert in some field, which he isn't. Yeah, because they're moving the business. They're moving everything to Vegas. Yeah. And he's already out there. So he thinks, you know, this is his chance to be a big shot, you know, and be the guy who knows everything and everyone. And is like the mover and shaker. Yeah. But it's like he's so unself-aware here. I mean, he's never going to be that. No, he's never going to be the guy that knows all the moves. It's just not going to happen. And Mo Green, I mean, Alex Rocco, what an oh, actor. Excellent, excellent. Oh. Yeah, he comes, you know, and he just blasts the screen. Like, I mean, it is just like watching a volcano erupt. He shows up, you know, and he just basically lets Michael know he's not going to listen to him. He doesn't give a shit, yeah. you know, and it's just like, you know, he's like says that he did a favor by having Fredo come and work for him and Michael loses it. You know, you see, again, that that shows you just how, you know, convoluted the family dynamics are, because if anyone talks about Fredo other than Michael or someone in the family, that guy is going to die. You yeah. know, there's no question. Oh, yeah. You're Again, it, and it's the same type of thing that we saw in Heat, you know, that we saw with Wayne Grow. You know, I mean, that was different. I mean, that was putting people's lives in danger. But it's the same type of, you know, insular community, you know, and it, it's very tight and it's very brutal. It, it's not something when you're involved in crime that things are going to go gently. We saw it in Goodfellas, you know, as well. Yeah, Goodfellas and this do have a lot of, like, the same DNA. I mean, even down to the simple things, like one of the big, you know, sticking points for these mob guys being drugs. You yeah, know, yeah. In this movie, it's that Vito doesn't want to get involved in narcotics. And we have the same thing with Polly in Goodfellas. And, you know, I think that something you were saying about it being like this family dynamic um, and also about how people are just constantly working is something we talked about with Goodfellas, too, where, like, the whole appeal of having this gangster life is that you don't have to live like a normal person. And it's like, you know, you don't have to have a normal person's job. But the reality is these people work 24-7. <laughs> They're never not working. Yeah, there, there is no break. And, and the news that they get that wakes them up in the middle of the night is never good news. No, well, that's the best scene of the movie, though, oh, right? Oh, my God. I mean, that, okay. You know, that scene, what, what we're talking about is after Sonny is assassinated and we have, we have Vito and we have Hagen together, you know, and they're talking. Oh, my God. Yeah, and Hagen has to break the news mm -hmm. to Vito that Sonny's died. And, you know, Vito knows something's wrong already. You yeah, know, he's come yeah. down. He's he's ill. He's bedridden, basically. But he says he's heard, you know, things going on around the house. And he knows something bad happened. And he's like, I know you have something to tell me. And he's like, you needed a drink first. And Hagen says, yeah. So now he even more knows that something really bad has happened. And, and Hagen finishes the drink and tells him, you know, Sonny died. And kind of just spits it out as quick as possible at that point. But this is where, like, Marlon Brando, like, earns his pay, you know? Oh, yeah, he drops this, the he, hammer. His reaction to that is just so affecting. I think that, you know, regardless of what else you might think about him in any other movie, you just have to say, like, this is why he has this reputation for being brilliant. Because he takes this scene that has very little 
actual dialogue in it. And what he's able to convey with just a breathe out that he does is so real. I mean, it's so real and so intense. And it's like, it's not unexpected. You know, this is a guy who's seen death so many times. But this is the first time one of his own children has has died. And, you know, that's so unnatural, right, to lose a child. And, and his, you know, I, I think that everybody probably knew that Sonny was going to have a violent death. Because Sonny had a freaking violent life. Yeah. But it doesn't make it any easier for him to deal with it. And even though, you know, he says that Sonny is bad at being in charge, you know, he recognizes all these things. But when it comes down to it, that's still his boy. Well, I mean, that's that's it. I, I mean, and again, it goes with Tom Hagen being the outsider. But in that scene, he is treated like a son. He is not treated like an outsider at all. Well, Vito really does treat him like a son, I think. I think... To me, that's the person who treats him most like he is part of the family, even though Sonny apparently is the one who brought him into the family. I feel like Sonny is just one of these guys that he can't shut his fucking mouth. You know, he's just going to say something horrible every time. He knows how to hurt people. You know, I mean, that's really, I, I feel, what Sonny's skill is. He knows how to hurt people. That's what he does. Well, screwing around on his wife. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he... He's the kind of person that just is always doing something that is hurtful to people. Well, that, and I think that's why, you know, he, he went the way that he did. Because it was like he brought so much violence into the world that the ending for him at that toll booth, I mean, that couldn't be more bloody if they tried. No. And Francis Ford Coppola said he was inspired by Arthur Penn's work on Bonnie and Clyde. And so... When he is shot, there's so many squibs on James Caan. Now, like, I've worked with squibs, like, a couple, you know? And, like, he has so many on his body. And it's not just, like, you know, when when you get shot, you have to act like you got shot. You have to have control of your body. And, and the way that he goes, you're like, oh, my God, I actually feel like he took, you know, these bullets you know, it, uh, I, I mean, James Caan in this, for me, this is my favorite work that he ever did. And I really like him in Michael Mann's Thief. I love him in Elf. There are so many things. But for yeah. me, this is my favorite James Caan performance because he has all of these little beats. For instance, at the very beginning of the commentary, Coppola talked about how James Kahn actually went and he met with the real guys. He wanted to get as much information as he could to inform his performance. And for me, you know, the part that I really like is the beginning at the wedding when he comes out, you know, and he sees all the FBI guys and he tries to reason with them and they, they you know, they don't want to hear it. He's like, it's my sister's wedding. They don't care. He just spits on the ground, you know. And then there's this other guy with a <laughs> with a camera. This is my favorite part. And he just takes the camera from the guy and he throws it on the ground and smashes it. 
And then, you know, it's like there's this quick beat where you could tell Sonny thinks about it. And he's a guy who has honor. And in his head, it's like, well, you know, I broke something. I, I guess I have to pay for it. So he reaches into his pocket, gets this wad of bills and peels off like two bills and drops it on the ground like it's the biggest, stinkiest <laughs> piece of shit you've ever seen. Like he makes that money look like shit. Yeah, like it could have been like eight billion dollars he dropped on the ground he made it look like one penny at best yeah you know it was a real insult and it's again it's it's that's what he knows he knows emotionally how to attack people and physically you know how to attack people yeah and he's just the angriest person (laughs) on planet earth like he he it takes nothing to set him off he's just constantly infuriated he just seems like he's always on fire with anger. I am a computer, Sonny. You know, like when I'm dealing with anything, you know, on the computer and it goes wrong, like it doesn't save or it does something else, that's when the true Sonny rises in me. You know, because it's just like, forget it. Yeah, that is really true. Yeah, that's when it John goes. John making a PowerPoint is oh. just sunny you just want to throw the computer on the ground and then put the money on it basically like when the editing program tanks out you know when you're really deep into a video edit and then it just goes and it didn't save and (laughs) oh my god or then you'll hand it to me and i'll like coldly fix it and then pass it back over (laughs) that is so true i'll go george i know you have a way with these things please take care of this like i i know better than to trust that's more of a hagen i do more of a hagen computer thing Uh, that's a nice that's a good one nice hagen nice hagen bro nice hagen you know i going back all right i want to go back to hagen and brando that's good did you like that i did the character name and then the actor (laughs) name we just do the old switcheroo that's okay you know like the Vito duval scene you know that one but what i love about that scene so much is how we have two actors that have so much emotion robert duval brilliant actor very reserved he plays it closer to the vest than anyone and when you see somebody like him crack you know it's it's something that is so rare you know in in this film that has so much macho energy to see two men crying and then you know Vito he gets up and he's hugging Tom and Tom's like kind of you know on his his head's on his chest and you can barely see his face But you can see his face just slightly, and you see it crumble. Oh, God. Yeah, Duvall kills it in this movie the whole time, but that particular scene is so good. I mean, and he, you know, I just, Tom Hagen is my favorite character in this, actually, because he is outside it, but he's also more inside than anybody else in some ways. Yes, yes. You know, he's so accepted by not only the Corleones, but by the greater group of the five families. You know, people, he's an outsider, but people treat him, like, with respect because he is this lawyer and, like, he handles things in such a smooth way. And I just, I'm I'm also super impressed by Robert Duvall as the character. I feel like he embodies it so well. And, like, even just these little things that he does... Even when he's not talking and he's just in the background of a scene, like the boardroom scene mm-hmm. with all the, you know, big mob guys, he sits behind uh, uh, Brando and on his right side, like he's kind of on his shoulder, you know, and just in the background, like doing nothing, he, his presence is so strong 
And it's like, you know how weak Don Vito is at this point, like physically, but he's still so sharp mentally. And then he also has Tom, who's also super sharp. And they do so much good work together. Like that, you know, the scene where he breaks it that Sonny died, unbelievable, great scene. Like if I could do that scene once i mean i don't know quit yeah i don't yeah you can't get better than that like it's just it's so good it's so good it's so good i i can't believe how much both of those guys showed us their souls and it, it just went so deep and you really felt it because when you have you know, I haven't had a son pass away, uh, you know, I, I mean, we're not parents, but, you know, I've had, you know, family members pass away like my father, you know, I, I've had, you know, a sibling pass away. These are very, very hard, hard emotions that just, they, they just drop on you. And they're like impossible to process immediately. Oh, yeah. It's like something that takes a long time. But the two of them just play it so real. It's not over the top. No. Like, there's nothing about it that doesn't feel real. And, like, I do not have a lot of emotions around this movie. Like, but that scene, I tear up. Like, no matter what. Because it is so real. You know? And and I just think also because Brando and Duvall have such a chemistry like the other scene I'm thinking about is after that boardroom when scene when they're in the car together. Like those two honestly seem closer than in like any other two people in the movie to me. Like they they think the same. You know, and you can tell how Tom because he isn't part of the family but because he was taken in almost feels like a debt to Don Vito for taking him in and taking care of him and putting him in this position of respect because he was just a street kid. Well, that's, you definitely can tell that, you know, Tom Hagen feels, you know, this debt, just like you said. And he, he really, I, I can't think of the word grateful. That sounds so cheap. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, I don't know. He is his reason for being who he is. Otherwise, he would just be on the street. He could be in jail. He could be dead. Now, he, he recognizes the opportunities that he's been given. Yes. You know, that he, he was and able to Do you to think he could have gone to law school? Yeah. Exactly. exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, how else could he have become a lawyer? Yeah. You know, and this is a guy who has a great mind. Like, Tom Hagen has a brilliant, great mind, but he wouldn't have been afforded these opportunities without the the goodness of Don Corleone. And he's very aware of that at all times. And I do think it's gratitude, you know. it's But it, it kind of feels like that's just not a strong enough word. Yeah. I know what you mean, but I, I, that's definitely what it is. He owes him a great debt of gratitude for allowing him to have this life. Well, and also you see that scene at The Undertaker's Ay, ay, ay. You know, it's like, it, it feels like an extension of the scene that we saw at the house, you know? You know, look how they massacred my boy. Oh, my God. And, and it's just, again, you see, you know, Duvall, and it's like, he's got that, that wall up. He's trying not to show any emotion. He's trying to just do his duty. And, you know, because he knows the dawn emotionally a guy that you know again plays it close to the vest 
it is 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 sad and i mean no one no one could fault him Mm-mm. for being sad in that moment and it's also beautiful you know, one of the things that I love is at the beginning of the film, The Undertaker wants justice. He tells him, you know, I'm going to call on you for a favor. You think it's going to be something horrible. And, it, you know, he tells The Undertaker, I want you to summon all of your skills and, you know, make my boy presentable for the funeral. And, yeah, because he doesn't want oof. his mother to see him that way. It's Look, it's crazy. And also one of the things with the, with the way the film is cut. So when we see Vito exit you know, the study or the office. I'm not sure what room in the house they're in. And he exits, and then he's going up the stairs, okay? As we see, you know, Don Corleone going up the stairs, we cut to the elevator ride down, and then we see The Undertaker. So it's, you know, there's something about that, about that motion. I I don't know. It's... It puts you off, you know, it like you, you feel off already emotionally. And again, I think that when you see, you know, Don Corleone go upstairs, you think, OK, we're going to have a breather for a second. You know, we're, we're going to be able to process this loss because Sonny was such a big part of the film. Mm-hmm. And he was this great protector who looked out for his sister. You know, there were a lot of great things about him in many ways. It reminds you of Tommy in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. You well, know? and he's such a big presence. Yeah, you know, like, James Conn's performance, again, is so killer. Yes. Because he just fully embodies this role. Mm-hmm. I cannot think of anybody else doing doing that, you know. And it's crazy to me, like, that they wanted him maybe to play Michael. No. Because he's so perfect as Sonny. He's I just sunny. can't imagine. I mean, that opens up a whole nother can of worms that we really need to talk about. <laughs> with how yeah. many people they floated... For Michael, and I mean, when I say floated, I mean floated. <laughs> you know, there's just some good actors, but like, not for this. No. To quote Jerry Lewis, <laughs> as we often do, uh, from a great interview where he was unbelievably pissed. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what they were thinking, but it was all wrong. At any rate, I'll come. I'll I'll put a pin in that and come back because I was talking about James Con and how great he is. And, you know, he's taller than everyone else. He's, like, physically more imposing than everybody else, kind of. And, like, when he's gone, it is a big hole, you know? And Vito has already gone through so much pain here, like, because when he finds out after, you know, he's all shot up and, like, in bed and can't even, you know, barely do anything. And he finds out that Michael is the one who went out and took care of it. He's very broken by that, you know? Because... He wanted something else for Michael. And also, because Michael's now going to be gone for who knows how long, and is an extreme danger, because not only did he kill, like, this pretty high-up guy, Salazzo. Alateri. Incredible. Incredible in this. Incredible in the getaway. Perfect villain. He and Sterling Hayden. I mean, they are so evil. They're They're the worst team in the best way. Yes. (laughs) 
They're horrible. I mean, I yeah, I can't stand them. Ugh. Like they're so disgusting. Like foul. Every... Sterling Hayden has never been more disgusting. No, he than hasn't. He is in this. And, and oh, he's so horrendous. He's just so offensive in any way. How about when like you know we're outside of the hospital after he's punched Michael, Ugh. and then Hagen shows up to shut him down, and then we go to Sterling Hayden, and he's so angry that he just can't carry out this rage and probably kill Michael. <laughs> and Enzo yeah. and he's just like fuck but it, you don't hear him you just hear him like you know what I mean he does this weird jerk and you're like Jesus Christ oh it's a brilliant performance oh, yeah. yeah he's so it's so like pissed. this impotent rage yeah. you know like he really wanted to do you know he really wanted to take him out and he thought he had his chance but then he lost it because obviously like Tom Hagen's here and just starts lawyering the shit out of everything. Mm-hmm. And like, if you want to do this, you're going to have to go to this judge and blah, 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 you know? Right. And, you know, immediately, I so, yeah, I'm definitely my Tom Hagen now. I just thought about it again. You, anytime we were in a fight, I just turn into like, you know, Tom Hagen. <laughs> Must be a terrible, no wonder you turn, turn into Sonny. That would be really <laughs> frustrating. Um, yeah, but... <laughs> Yeah, so, but that scene is great, and Al Latiri has one of the best faces of anyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's almost like a a Sicilian Jerry Orbach or something, like mm-hmm. he's got just this real, like, I don't know, hound face or something, and he really spoke Sicilian, so he, like, was brilliant in that dinner scene, oh, you know, well. talking to Michael in this restaurant. Which they shot in the first week, as Francis Ford Coppola told us. He thinks that's what saved him from being fired. Yeah. Uh, that scene, oh, that scene is so good. That's another top scene from the movie for me. Like, because it's so suspenseful. Like, you know, Pacino's in here, and he's in a horrible situation, and, you know, he's always calm. And this is like the one time that he almost loses it. Yeah, you can see the fear. You yeah. can see it. And I mean, everything. And in the bathroom. Yes. When he goes into the bathroom and it seems like the gun is maybe not there, he almost panics. And he doesn't do that. That's not a Michael thing. No. When he's in that bathroom, he can't find the gun. You're like, wait, wait. You know, like, I've seen this movie before. It has to be there, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, the movie really changes for me. You know, when we go to the hospital, that is when this whole film kicks into overdrive. Because when Michael goes to the hospital to see his father and there's no one there protecting him, and it turns into this horror film because it's like these empty hallways and he finds this nurse. And it was really interesting to hear some information about that, which was George Lucas, you know, pitched in and helped his friend Francis Ford Coppola with this. And he was like, you need some empty corridors. You know, we need to build some suspense. We need that fear. And what they did is they actually looked through the footage they had shot. And after actors had walked, you know, just out of frame, you know, you have like Coppola saying cut. They just used that video. Yeah, like that kind of handle on the end of the take. Yeah. And it was just like these things made it so suspenseful. It made me think about honestly like a modern day horror video game like Silent Hill. Yeah, definitely. Like it was terrifying. I was like, whoa, what's gonna happen here? You know, and then it's like then we <laughs> again so wonderful. Then we have Enzo the Baker. Oh, I love him. Which loops back around again from the beginning because, you know, uh one of the guys that came to visit Don Corleone was asking, 
you know, to help out Enzo because Enzo was in love with his daughter, I think. And, you know, he, he's like illegal. So he wanted him to help him out. And Enzo comes to visit him in the hospital as a way to say thank you. Worst timing ever, this Enzo has. Yeah, Enzo, like, just seems like a really nice guy. That <laughs> yeah. He's just thrown into the situation where he's to act like he's some type of mob enforcer, act like he has a gun, in the face of these terrifying thugs in the middle of the night. You also have these Christmas lights up because it's Christmas time, which makes this all the more awful. You know, it's like instead of Santa coming to give gifts, you have the Grim Reaper delivering death. And like Enzo is just totally out of his element. He does great. You know, Michael pulls his collar up, tells him where to put his hand. You know, it, it works. And then, oh, my God, after the bad guys go away, Enzo's, like, fumbling for a cigarette. He's trying to, you know, calm back down. You know, can't we're... even light a Zippo because he's so nervous. Yeah. And that's when we see Michael, like, super chill. You know, this hasn't flustered him. It might have, You know, he might have been a little concerned, but it was more about doing the job and making sure everything was taken care of. And he lights the cigarette for Enzo and even kind of looks at his own hand and acknowledges, hey, I'm not nervous, <laughs> almost. You know, it's like Pacino kind of gives this little, you know, I don't know, kind of a movement. This is why he's so good, right? Because he adds these little touches that you could almost gloss over. Mm -hmm. But it's so... Um, characterizing. Oh, it's incredible. And I mean, again, we need to remember that Michael is a veteran. He is a soldier. So he has been in these situations. And, you know, you ha I have questions about, you know, how was the combat that he faced? Was everything at a distance? Were things, you know, close quarters combat? When we have the restaurant scene and he kills those two men, you know, is it because he feels like this is, you know, in a change into a life of crime that he can never come back from? Is it that he feels that this is cold-blooded murder as opposed to, you know, justified killing? Which is what you do when you're in the military, I guess, you know. Well, when I you're mean, killing Nazis, a... I think that that was like, that's the easiest thing. You but know I, what I mean? I think that's you know? a really good point. Like... His mentality is almost, to me, like a sharpshooter, like a sniper, almost like somebody who's just super calm under pressure. He could wait up in the bell tower forever. He would have everything set up just right. He's the guy that would, like, literally pee in a bottle. You know, he <laughs> wouldn't like, make any sound. Yeah, yeah. Barry Pepper in, right? in Saving Private Ryan or something. Like, That's good. That's a good I, call. Yeah. I can see him being like that, like a guy that is very self-contained, like and and very calm and cool and methodical mm -hmm. you know i don't see him being like a hand-to-hand -hand, like close combat kind of person i mean not that he couldn't do it right but just that he it would kind of be wasted on him well he has so much intelligence and he understands people he understands the psychology of people and that's what we see time and time again with his very slow movement for again when he deals with fredo you know, it's just like very direct, very to the point when he deals with Tom later and tells him you're out you yeah, know, very coldly. You're that's out. That's it. it. That's it. We're not talking about it. And, and, you know, that bears out later a little bit. There's a lot of reasons for him to say that, um, you know, to pull Tom away from the second in command position. But 
you know, Tom wants to argue about it. Right. For him, it feels like he's being demoted, you know, because really he is. He's going from like second in command down the ladder here. Um, and he is disturbed by that. Well, for Tom, let's think about it. Not only is this a demotion, since he isn't officially part of the family, okay, and the dawn is on his way out. It, 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 you know, is he really even going to be a part of this anymore? Or is he just going to be, you know, out in the street? I mean, he is a lawyer, but the only client he has, you know, is the Corleone family. He has no one else. What's he going to do? How is he going to get a legitimate job? Maybe the Corleone family is pissed off people that will kill him. Well, and, you know? and Michael keeps everything so close to the vest. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't explain things to people. No. Like, even when people... <laughs> ask for it like one of the things i really enjoyed this time that for some reason i really hadn't thought about before is like that very end kind of exchange between him and Kay. brilliant where he's like don't ask me about my business don't ask me about my business then he's just like fine i'm gonna let you ask me about it this one time <laughs> and she says did you did you kill carlo and he's like no so he straight up lies right in his wife's face even though he just said, like, <laughs> and and he's so equivocal, right? He's equivocating because he's saying to her, yes, you can ask me about my business this one time. But he doesn't say, and I'm going to tell you the truth, <laughs> which he then doesn't. No. It's very, like, honestly, it's like Macbeth. Like, you know, it's it's like you're lying in such a way that it seems like you're telling the truth. Well, that's what we see with Michael, right? So we have, you know, this thought, trepidation, however we want to couch it, with, with the restaurant murders, okay? And then, you know, he sets up everything so all of these murders occur during the baptism, you know? So it's like he is at this baptism. He knows that all of these people are being killed all over town. He knows that after this baptism... Carlo's going down, which is the father of the kid he's now the godfather of. This is, you know, his sister's <laughs> husband. Ice cold. Yeah, like he has guy. it. <laughs> and with Carlo, oh, holy shit. When he gets to Carlo at the end, I mean, there is no hesitation. There is nothing. And it's like, he seems like a human being, but it's like he's just going through the motions of being a human being. You know, he tells, I like I love that he tells Carlo he's he's out of the business. You know, he's just gonna take a trip. Here's the plane ticket. Like that's so good. Yeah, it's like he really like I don't know. It's like he added insult to injury there. Well, he needed it's to like, go. Yeah, yeah. Look, he needed to go. None of us are gonna shed a big tear over old Carlo. I just want to say, like, I think that there's so much just smart symbolism stuff going on in that baptism scene too, mm-hmm. because it's like. The event that's happening is that he's becoming the godfather of a child. By the way, the baby is Sofia Coppola. That's so awesome. <laughs> but he's becoming the the godfather. He's also becoming the godfather because all these other crime family heads are being killed mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just love how that kind of coincides. And it's so smart. It's so smart, yeah, because it's like, for him, it's a baptism of blood is really what we see. You know, that is what he is bathed in. Again, goes back to Macbeth. You get drunk on this power and you keep going further and further up the ladder. Well, and that's the only choice he really has here. Yeah, because he made this choice to go into it. And he has that great scene with Marlon Brando, 
you know, at the uh, at the house, you know, by the tomatoes. And he says, you know, we'll get there, Pop, meaning we're going to get there with being legitimate. You know, it's going to happen at some point. But I don't believe him at all. I don't believe him at all. Like in that particular moment, I, I don't believe him at all. I think maybe he's thinking about his kids. He's thinking about, you know, future generations. But it's not going to be for a while. And it's certainly not going to be with him because once you commit yourself to violence like this there is no easy way for you to ever exit because that's who you are yeah i love that scene because it's i mean first of all you got two of the greats of all time mm-hmm. together in this one scene yeah um top of their game both yeah. of them and i just i really love Al Pacino's body language in that scene, he's just kind of like lazing it up in this chair. Like he's leaned so far back. And this is like, I don't think we've ever seen Michael like physically be comfortable or be relaxed. And he's so relaxed in this scene when he's basically talking about this plan they have to just absolutely destroy things as they are and change everything and remake it into him being kind of the big cheese overall well i think it's actually you bring it up and i'm like hmm let's explore this you talk about his posture well you know he comes out of the military and as i recall at the beginning you know, he has great posture. He's standing up straight. He's very proper. And then the more he goes into this criminal role, you know, the more it's like you see like that sloth kind of thing. It's like you see all of these, these like seven deadly sins wash over him. You well, know? Yeah, he's become almost like a, a vulture or something. He is kind of hunched at the end. Um, but I think that it's interesting to watch that happen. You know, and he does have a change. Well, when he's in Sicily, things change mm. a lot, right? I mean, like, we haven't even talked about that part yet. Oh, there's so much. We haven't even talked about Clemenza. I know. I know. We've talked about uh, There's so much in this movie. It's really hard. I mean, first of all, it's a long movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so many things happen. But I think that that part where Michael is in Sicily is so interesting because... He's really becoming a different person while he's there. Sure. I mean, before he goes to Sicily, right, he is with Kay, first mm-hmm, of all. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time we're kind of introduced to Michael, we see that he doesn't really respect in a certain way what the family is doing. Like, he's part of it, but he doesn't want to be a part of it. And, and he's outside in a way that is kind of like the reverse of tom hagen okay like by blood michael belongs to the family but he doesn't act like he belongs to the family he doesn't feel that he belongs just mentally like and and his persona doesn't fit whereas tom hagen even though he's not a blood relative he could not be more in on it as far as the family business goes well let's think about this okay so michael doesn't come into the family business until much later in life so tom hagen is like the replacement for michael it's like hey you know we have this one son we want him to be legitimate we need somebody else you know what 
let's let's get this Hagen guy in on it. You know, he'll be good. And then, you know, that's what happens. I mean, yeah, that's very interesting. So it's like, wow, this is crazy. So again, it's like we have this thing where it's almost like sibling rivalry between Michael and Tom. Hmm. And that's why... It, I see it, that in their relationship, too. Right? And that's why I feel like, you know, when he tells Tom you're out, I feel like it's because, you know... I am a part of this family by blood, and you just showed up. You don't belong here. I do. And he wants to take his place in the family that he belongs in. Like at the wedding, you know, it's like Michael doesn't want to be bothered. He doesn't like anybody. He tells Kay some stories about how... You know, he just thinks they suck. You know what I mean? That That's really it. It's like, no, you know. it's like he doesn't feel like he belongs and he doesn't want to belong. No, he, he thinks they're trash. He, he looks down on them. He is a guy that's lawful. He believes in justice. He believes in his country. He believes in this American way. Right. And, and that's kind of what we see. Well, it is what we see at the very beginning with The Undertaker. And what happens? He can't get justice from the police. So he comes over to the Godfather to get that justice. And that's, you know, we talked about this earlier. This is what Michael has. Michael, you know, comes home from the war, you know, a respected man, you know, and then he's just thrust into this situation. And, you know, he, he goes all in, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Well, you know, he's brought in basically through an act of violence, mm -hmm. which is getting punched in the face yeah. by McCluskey, Sterling Hayden. And it's like, it's almost like that violence is what just like births him into this situation and they kind of like rib him about it a little bit like, oh, you're, you're doing this cause you want revenge you know, against this guy for punching him. And he's like, no, he, he just doesn't see any other way that this situation can be resolved. And if that means that he, as a, quote, civilian, has to be, you know, thrust into the action, then it just has to be that way. Because well, like, he does love his father yes. very much. Even though he doesn't love, you know, the mafia, he loves his dad. Well, and the police are there supposedly to protect you. And he sees that the police are corrupt. He's from the military. The military go to places to bring justice, particularly in World War II. No one can argue. World War II. Yes. Yeah. Be there. Stop this. And you come home and, you know, it's like when you see the police, it's like you guys are the same, except they're on the local level. You're on the global level. Yeah. And there is no respect. There mm -hmm. is nothing like, you know, hey, he's okay. Actually, one of the guys in the background, I think his name's Sonny Grasso, he um, was from the uh, the actual real French connection. I think he was one of the real guys. And and so it's like, he's like, hey, you know, he doesn't have a record. You know, he's, you know, he's in the military. He's a good kid, basically. And Sterling Hayden doesn't care. He is like, you know what? I don't care. You know, and it's just like he's saying all this horrible shit against Italians and just people. Yeah. And he's, he's trash. So you come to find out that you do everything that you can to be this good person. You know, and you're like, you know, I did all the right things. Look at this. I am doing the right thing. I want you to look after my father. This is the right thing. And this cop not only says no, 
he insults him so deeply and then he hurts him he bad. breaks his face yeah i mean like he oh. just it's so painful looking for you know such a, a long period of time like even after he's in sicily and it's presumably healed he still has like this purple mark on his face for a long time well they said that what they did is they actually wired his jaw shut for real so that he could you know bring that to his performance and you feel that pain when you see pacino talking after that punch it hurts yeah a lot you can tell it's it's awful yeah and you know he does bring that through the the assassination of McCluskey and Salasso, and it's that's such a great scene. It is just such a great scene, and yeah. it's so it's so grotesque mm-hmm. when he shoots McCluskey. Like he gets uh, he gets Salazzo right through the forehead once, mm-hmm. and they actually told him to shoot both of them twice, I think, but he just gets them once. But he gets McCluskey twice, and McCluskey is like, they're like, you know, gaping like a fish, you know, and then takes one in the forehead, I think, at that point. And it's just, it's it's horrible. It's horrible. And they're just in this, like, pool of blood. And Michael leaves, drops the gun, runs out. Well, it's interesting. He shoots McCluskey twice. Now, get this. So... He asks, McCluskey asks, you know, what's the best Italian dish that you have? And that's what he goes for. And Michael shoots him in the throat while he's eating. And it's like, you know, if you're going to be prejudiced against Italian-Americans, you don't deserve our food. You should <laughs> fucking choke on it. Wow. And then you see him, he's like, oh, and then he shoots him in the head. It, it's fuck you twice. I mean, that that's what happens. With Salazzo... You know, he is predatory, you know, but he is part, you know, of the of the family. You know what I mean? Part of the of the crime family. You know, he's just on a different team. Right. So I I feel like there is a degree of respect. For instance, we have the scene with Salazzo and Hagen, you know, in that diner, you know, and and Salazzo is like, look, I'm not going to rough you up. He's just like, I'm just going to talk to you. You know, and it's like when he's talking to to Pacino, he has this great line and he's like, you think too much of me, kid. I'm not that clever. You know what I mean? And he says it in such a good way. Yeah. He's so good. Wonderful. wonderful Well, but then he's he's in he's in on the killing of Luca Brasi. And it's horrible. Oh, and and that's what and uh, Coppola said that stabbing Luca's hand, that was his idea. You know, because it's like that scene is so scary. You don't know what's going to happen. Luca, oh, man. You know, what a what a great character. He just seems so lovable. He's so stupid, but he's like he's like a dog. Like his loyalty to Don Vito cannot be questioned. No. You know, and they even say that later, like in it's kind of dramatic irony. Because I think Tom Hagen tells Salonzo, like, you're not going to be able to stop Luca. And they already have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he's such kind of an oaf and he, you know, but he's still a big part of things because of this loyalty. And it's sad, like, when they get him. You know, they stab him in the hand so he can't grab the thing around his neck, I think. And he looks like he died. Like, he looks like he died. The way his <laughs> eyes pop out yeah. and he's got his tongue off to the side. I mean, that is that is a terrifying death. Yeah, it, it's so gruesome. And, you I know? mean, it's hard because we like him. He's so likable because we've seen him, you know, at the beginning. He just wanted to come in and say, you know, basically express his gratitude 
to Don Vito just for being, you know, a great godfather. Yeah, for thank him for, you know, inviting him to the wedding. We see him just practicing that speech, and you just feel terrible for the guy. And then he know? messes up. Oh, he's God. Saying, and uh, Coppola was saying that uh, Brando actually was pranking the guy. <laughs> And had some, like, kind of note stuck to his forehead. Yeah, it said, fuck you. And it was just cracking him up <laughs> when he's trying to... So he's trying to stay serious, and he stumbled over the words. And uh, and they kept it, because it just made sense. It, it was Luca. So I, I thought that was really good. It was perfect. And I love, I love the reaction of Marlon Brando when Luke is trying to, you know, give us prepared speech. It's so funny. He can't deal with it. It's just like, well, he's already said, like, do we have to do this? (laughs) It's like, does he really need to come in here? Like, he's so like, oh, God, not this guy. You know? Yeah. That's funny. It's it's like, you know, you get the feeling from Don Vito, again, it's his daughter's wedding, an enormous event, an enormous event. But, you know, on a practical level, it makes you think about when you're at work. You know, and you oh, just yeah. want to get out the door for the long weekend. And, and people just, keep raising you know, like, their hand oh. and asking a question at the meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just, you can't escape. You know, I, I mean, I, I feel like I should just have a list of the characters and go through each one. I love Johnny Fontaine. Great oh, character. Yeah. Really, really wonderful. I mean, that brings us into the whole Hollywood element of the film. Oh, God, you know? we haven't even talked about no? that. No? Like, one of the biggest things I think that people talk about, because it was so shocking, in this movie is the horse head and the bed scene. Mm. I hate that scene personally, just because I find it too gruesome. It's not that I think it's bad or, you know, it doesn't belong in the movie. It totally does, but I'm just kind of like icked out. So I kind of want to look away and I'm not a looking away person, but this one really made me want to shut my eyes. Well, yeah. And I mean, then we heard the story about the horse head in the commentary. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. Uh, and like he got it from a dog food factory or something, I guess. Yeah, and it was like these horses would be killed for dog food and you know they didn't kill the horse, but you know they were there and I think uh one of the people from the art department, you know, was like, "Okay, you know, when it's this horse's time, if you could just send us the head." Literally the head was sent to them like packed in ice. Huh. Oh, my God. I mean, I love animals, too. This is, like, mega hard for me. I never had, you know, this information before. I, I mean, God damn. I got to tell you, this, this this little piece of info brings it so far out of the comfort range that it's just, like, I don't want to spend too much yeah, time like, on Yeah, like, how it. are we even talking about this? Yeah. Because it's a yeah. crime movie, and you can't talk about crime movies without talking to The Godfather. But that scene is very disturbing. It's harsh. Uh, in so many ways, and also because just the concept of it happening is so upsetting to me because you have, um, you know, you see the horse alive earlier. Mm-hmm. You see, like, this beautiful, like, you know, racehorse or whatever. It's from uh, great stock, and it's this expensive, beautiful creature. Right. And they kill it because this guy's not willing to play ball on giving Johnny Fontaine a part in a movie. I mean, it seems like such a waste. Oof. It's very upsetting. Well, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... I, I mean... could refuse that. I would be like, nope, never again. But, yeah, I mean, I also got to say, everything with Duvall in Hollywood is amazing because yes. he's so chill about it. 
I mean, this guy's like, this waltz or whatever is like screaming in his face about, you know, how angry he is at Johnny Fontaine. And it's very, you know, ridiculous and ironic because he's talking about him spoiling this girl. But he was already sleeping with her anyway. Well, it's just he took her away from him is really what it is. It's just an old man and his pride, and he feels that he was made a fool of. And so it's like, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. It just is like the same things happen. It's just like some some playground bullshit. Like, you took my ball, you know? Where's my He-Man figure? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like that's... That's what we see. I mean, with Robert Duvall, again, you understand how he is calculated. And he is calm, very much like Michael. You know, it's like he is just taking it all in. And it also, in a lot of ways, reminds me of, you know, when you're an actor, you can have a director freak out on you. You you can have somebody just lose it on you. And it's like you still have to do your job. So it's like you just kind of process the information that you need and you move on and you diffuse the emotion from the situation. That's what it feels like. Because, you know, Robert Duvall is like, you know, I'm going to leave now. If you can have a car, take me to the airport. The The Don insists on getting bad news immediately. So... You know, it's just like we're we're doing business, we're moving on. I mean, yeah. there's there's nothing else. It's that's, all business, like very business, like yeah, that's all there is. I mean, what I also all right, I'm doing it now. I mean, it's a weird transition, but I want to go to something joyful. How about that, okay. Clemenza? Ah, Clemenza. Clemenza. Oh, the take the cannoli. That's so good, and the story <laughs> behind that is incredible. You know, so when Clemenza is driving away from his house, the person that was playing Clemenza's wife, Coppola's like, say something to him, you know, like tell him to get some cannoli. Because Francis Ford Coppola said that his father, you know, when he would go out a lot of times, would come home with like a treat, you know, like cannoli, you know, just something, just something to throw in, just an extra piece of dialogue to make it more authentic. And so Clemenza's wife, like, says you know get the cannoli he's like okay you know when they go (laughs) and then you know they kill the guy and the the leave the gun take the cannoli was actually an improv from clemenza you know it's like a brilliant actor he's excellent in this throughout he's kind of like the rock of the family in some ways like he does a lot of work for them Mm -hmm. he is the guy who's making the sauce yes (laughs) course making sauce such a big deal in all of these movies right like italian american that that was a big part of it right there and then in goodfellas Mm -hmm. as well yeah it's again these themes just kind of wrap around each other you know as as we go forward which is really interesting i mean my favorite scene with clemenza has to be when he is in the basement with michael showing him the gun you know he's like okay here's the gun you know let, let's get this all straightened out, telling them how things are going to go. It's very practical, you know. It's yeah. very workmanlike. This guy's the guy who does a lot of the actual work that keeps these people going. And we see that throughout. And then at the very end, you know, when all the people are gathering around Michael in the office, Clemenza is one of the first people, you know, that comes over and pays his respect to him. He, he just is such a great character, and it was really interesting because he was supposed to be in The Godfather Part Two, and the reason he wasn't in it is very interesting. It didn't have to do with money. It had to do with the fact that the actor wanted him to hire someone to write his dialogue. His own. He wanted to bring in his own person. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was like that was that was the thing, and then Coppola's like, no, and then that was that was that. Yeah. So then they end up saying that he's died or something. And that actor's name that played Clemenza is Richard Castellano. Coppola calls him Richie. Richie. He calls everybody by these nicknames. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it is funny when you hear these things because you're just like. Uh-oh. You know, it goes back to, like, the Jimmy Stewart thing. Like, how yeah. comfortable are we? You know, it, it's just like, I don't know. Like Jimmy Kahn. He talks about Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Kahn. You know, but, yeah, but Castellano, fantastic actor. Just so interesting. So layered. And it's so grounded. And that's that's what I love about it. You know, he and Abe Vigoda are a really interesting team. I mean, okay, let's talk subtle. Hagen and Sally. You know what I mean? That scene. Oh, when Abe God. Vigoda is going to go die because we know that he is the traitor and he is appealing, you know, to Hagen. Hey, is there anything we can do, Tom? And it's like, not this time, Sally. You know, and it's, oof. It's hard because, so like, you know, these guys have been close for years. But once, you know, you go over to the other side, you're done. That's what's so hard. That 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 is what's so hard about these films is like you do really get invested in these characters and you see the poor choices that they make but you still try to love them anyway and and it just reaches a point where you're just like I don't know can I still love them? I I don't know that I should. You know, it's a it's a really excellent piece of work for for bringing us you know, inside of a family. And I mean, that's really what it comes down to, family dynamics. I mean, Mm -hmm. literally, we have the Corleone family. And then we also have, you know, a crime family as well. You know, we also have Diane Keaton in this film as Kay. And it's like, you know, she's coming into the family, right? Yeah, and she's totally outside, you know. It kind of is a little bit like uh, Lorraine Bracco's character in Goodfellas, where, Mm -hmm. like, she's not part of this culture at all. No. You know, it's completely foreign to her, and she's trying to learn to be a part of it because she loves Michael and wants to be with Michael. Right. But it's just, you know, she clearly doesn't get it, you know? No. And the funny thing is that, and I, you know, we talked about this a little bit, like he, you know, when Michael is in Sicily, he marries someone else. Like, he marries this Apollonia. Right. And, you know, I think that the whole Sicily interlude is... Michael really becoming devoted to the idea of being a part of the family, like being a real part of the family business Mm -hmm. because he's in Sicily. He sees where they came from. Like he's, it's like he's getting connected to his roots in a way and it makes him understand why they do things the way they do. And it's, it makes it so that what he did with killing Salazzo and McCluskey isn't just a one-off it's more like he is strongly a part of it now and when he comes back and we kind of flash forward to when he meets Kay there outside the school and time has passed he's been back it says he's been back for a year at that point he is now a full part of this family business in a way that he wasn't before he went to Sicily well, it also lets you know with the Sicily piece is it is dreamlike. He meets Apollonia. He's got these guys watching him. Everything seems to be peaches. We hear, you know, the bad guys know you're here, you're in danger, but we don't really feel that. And he doesn't really play it that safe. Like nope. he's out talking in English. He doesn't speak Italian. Mm-mm. So like if he's hiding, 
he's not doing a very good job of it, you know. No, well, and I guess I think that what what they're also showing there is the death of his naivete, which is that you know I'm somewhere else. You know, no one's really going to know me here. It's going to be fine. And then he's betrayed by one of his right-hand oh, guys. God, that kills me. Every time I see those two guys, at first I'm like, ah, oh, these guys. Then I'm like, oh, no. And you... Apollonia, who is an innocent, you know, blows up in this car bomb. It's horrible, horrible. It, it's so bad. And Michael fully knows that the choices that he's made will follow him wherever he goes forever. He is on this path. There is no shortcut. There is no going back. You know, it's just like if you decide to go into the gladiator ring, you will eventually die there. Yes, exactly. And anybody that you connect to also will. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, even though, you know, we don't explore this in great detail, but I think that's probably why it did take him like a while to go see Kay after he's moved back because he doesn't know if he wants to bring her into this or not. Because once he does, she's in. Yeah. You know, there's no way out. She's in for a world of hurt. Look at his own mother, right? His own mother has lost her son to violence, lost her husband, or, you know, basically. He's not dead yet, but he is close. And he, you know, has been horribly injured, nearly died. We get the feeling that if Don Vito wasn't the super strong guy, he would have been dead, like, immediately. Yeah. But he stuck it out and pushed through. And, you know, she, she is this mother and even though she's not necessarily like pulling the trigger on anything or whatever she still has to be part of this sorrow and grief and pain that surrounds being a part of this violent culture there is no escape from it there is no escape and all of the things that seem to be so great like the money and the cars and this supposed freedom are a prison. There, there is no freedom. You know, when you look at the Corleone compound, you know, we have the gate and you're like, oh, it's nice. It's big. You know, that gate not only keeps people out, it keeps you in. It's a jail. Yeah. yeah. And you take a look at Michael's tie. He actually has a black and white striped tie, <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, oh, OK, you know, he is prisoner now. You know, he is in this and his demeanor changes. He dies. You know, the old Michael dies. I mean, he seems to be, you know, open. He's so open when he's with Kay at the wedding at the beginning of the film, talking about Luca putting a gun to the guy's head, you know, say, and his dad saying either your signature or your brains are going to be on this contract. You know, it, it's like that openness is long gone. You know, there is nothing. I mean, and at the very end, we're bookended, like you said, to the scene with Kay, where it's like you could talk about, you can ask me about my business this one time. And, yeah, he lies. You know, there's there's Without nothing. a freaking blink, like, his face doesn't change at all, and he instantly lies to her. And you also have, you know, at the beginning, this is one of the things that, you know, we get from uh, Vito, where he says that, you know, I wish you could have been like a, a politician or, you know, a lawyer or something, you know what I mean, some kind of white-collar job that, you know, is respectable. Then we learn that, that Don Vito actually has all these politicians in his pocket. So I think in some ways he might have actually been angling with that, not only for the business, but also for Michael to say, hey, you know what? I know this judge. We can get you right in. You can move right along. And the deal would be, I don't want him to have anything to do with the business. I just want you to help him get into the right spot so that he can be established. 
it, it's like that change that we see. It makes you think about like the Kennedy family, how they went from being bootleggers to politicians. All of a sudden, it's like you're criminals. And then it's like all of a sudden, hey, now you're like running the country. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> exactly. that's it. You know, like be present. You can be anything. And we've seen this hard life you know, that these guys have chosen, and that's not it. And then we have Fredo, who, I don't know, he should just, like, practice his yo-yo skills or something. <laughs> you know, maybe get a magic yeah. show going. Learn I don't juggle. know. Yeah, yeah it's, know. It, what does he do? I mean, but you feel bad for him. You know, it's just like, oh, Fredo. Well, you know? I just want to talk for a minute, if we can, about this idea of, of casting these other people. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Role. Let's do it. Um, because I was pretty much like the whole time we're listening to this commentary with Francis Ford Coppola, which I highly recommend. It's fantastic. Yeah. Really, really insightful and interesting. And just to hear like, you know, he's clearly still traumatized <laughs> from his experience on, you know, working with these producers and things who really were the studio heads were like telling him to do all kinds of weird stuff. And, you know, he was kind of made to feel like he didn't know what he was doing and, it's it's a wild wild story considering how successful this film is. Marlon Brando is yeah. like a pretty big guy. You know, well, not like at we this point. That's that's weird. Well, they that's said... what he said. But I, I'm like, really? Like, when did he become big just because of this? Like, I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't alive then, right. so I obviously don't know. But you know, he looms so large to me in like film history, and I would see that starting from like you know probably streetcar or something because, I would... yeah it was so method and everybody like just talked about how you know intense he was and stuff like that so i would have thought he was already pretty big but whatever again well he was big i think from the first thing that i remember him from uh, not that i was alive back then it was something called the men it was this black and white film and it was like he was an injured serviceman and it was really strong and i mean you know he of course had you know, the theater, yeah, you know, all this. Yeah, theater guy. And he just had all of these ideas, and everybody thought he was very attractive, and he was very talented, and he was bringing these new things to the table. But Paramount did not want him. You know, they said that there were three stipulations. If you wanted Marlon Brando, he does not get paid. I was like, holy shit. You know, it was like you put up a bond, or he puts up a bond, I think, to guarantee... You know, that if anything goes wrong with the film, he pays for it. And what was the third one? I don't remember. Yeah, it was insane. But they made, I think, because he had a screen test. I think that was it. They needed him to screen test. So Coppola, like, goes out and kind of presents it as being, like, just a makeup test. (laughs) But it was really screen test. And and in the course of that makeup test um, is when Brando, like, came up with this idea to, like, have kind of that jowly face. Yeah. And he kind of transformed his look on camera and it convinced them to let let him use Marlon Brando. Well, because he was had a he was blonde, had a ponytail, he's forty seven. Yeah. You know, it was just like he just kinda of came up with these mannerisms and, and, and this whole deal. And yeah, people could see the transformation and then that was enough to get yeah. him going. They hated Al Pacino. They, they didn't hated want... Al Pacino. Yeah, the... they didn't want him. But the the two people who it sticks out to me that he was talking about them wanting instead, and I'm not besmirching these people's acting talents because I think they're very talented and there's movies that they're in that I like, Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. Okay. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> 
is the only thing I have to say about this. Okay. Is Robert Redford great in a lot of movies? Shit, yes, he is. He continues to be great up until, you know, recent movies as well. He's a good actor. He's not fucking Sicilian. No. What the hell are you talking about, Robert Redford? Are you crazy? And Ryan O'Neill, kind of same problem. Al Pacino is actually Sicilian. In fact... His maternal grandparents are from Corleone, Sicily. Hello. He's born to play this part. Like, ancestrally, he fits in this part. Of course, he looks perfect for it. His acting is amazing. I mean, again, 70s Al Pacino is, you know, the top of the heap of all time in my opinion, as far as acting goes. I just can't imagine that you wouldn't, like, immediately be psyched to have him in this. But the people who, you know, were the higher-ups were just not impressed. And they were very, you know, strongly urging him to get rid of them. That's, you know, again, the fact that everyone, it seems, was in at risk of losing you know, their jobs. Like, I mean, the thing with Marlon Brando, the Bond thing they forgot about, and they did end up paying him, but not much because they said he was box office poison at that point and that he was just horrible with everyone. And, you know, it, it was crazy. I mean, okay, you know, people, you know, can be difficult, but I just, I find it wild too because Marlon Brando was seen as like the second coming, the guy that reinvented acting. You know, so, I mean, having that. And also, I mean, we're dealing with people that had a lot of theater experience. And Francis Ford Coppola likes rehearsal. He likes to have a couple weeks of rehearsal at least beforehand so that they can work on the actual film. And in this, they talked about, you know, how they had a dinner scene. They actually set up a table in the back of a restaurant. And, you know, they had Marlon Brando at the head of the table. And they had Al Pacino next to him. And, you know, everybody just kind of met. And, and he said, uh, Francis Ford Coppola said he likes to do hands-on things. You know, it's like they make a meal together or they do some kind of team activity together to get to know each other. And over the course of this meal, Coppola had all this great Italian food brought in. They kind of got to know each other and they started to just assume, you know, their roles. They knew who they were. And again, there was also improvisation. You know, there were things where people were able to bring, you know, to the table and see what was there. And then, you know, there was a script which was based on Mario Puzo's novel. And, you know, it was like there was this process where Coppola had written the script and then he would take these improvisations and go to Puzo. And then the two of them would kind of work something out so that they could get the absolute best product that they could, you know, the best of both worlds. And with that being said, the actors were still open to do things on camera, you know, on the day to, to bring it to life, you know. Those little touches, you know, just like you're saying, Georgia. Oh, my God, the cat. Yeah, the cat was just this little thing that happened. It was just kind of one of these things where there's just this cat wandering around the set. And Coppola, like, picked it up and just before the take handed it to Marlon Brando, who was a big animal lover. And just having this cat is so classic you know, anybody, anytime you think about him in The Godfather or anybody parodying it, you have him holding this cat, you know. 
And the cat just made it so real. It just felt like something that could really be happening. You know, and the cat really took to him and it's kind of playing with him while he's talking and listening to this guy. And when he sets it down, it just plops onto the desk and relaxes there. And it was just really amazing how that worked. Well, it's it's an acting thing that I was taught a long time ago, which is, you know, if you are using an object in a scene, like I'm tying a piece of rope, I'm tying my shoes, I'm baking a cake, I am focused on that activity. And when I'm saying the lines, I'm not putting the, the, this like artifice on the lines. I'm actually talking while I'm doing. And that brings about the, this real truth, you know, that, that you can just feel in these scenes. Uh, you know, I just can't say enough about this film and what there is that you can you can take away from it. It's this amazing kaleidoscope of characters. We move around from person to person. In a way, honestly, it's almost like a, a Game of Thrones type of situation because everyone wants to have that power you might not at the very beginning i mean you most likely do and then when you get it do you want it can you handle it i mean you know in the case of santino literally literally i've pinned it down santino knows how to fucking fight and that's what he does the entire movie you know and that's his thing that's it fucking and fighting okay but when you're the boss that doesn't really work you know, no. you can't just fucking fight. You need to do more than that. And then with Tom Hagen, they feel like he is not aggressive enough. So it's like when Michael comes along, he has the viciousness of Sonny tempered with the calmness and the intelligence of Hagen. And he has the benefit of his father's insight. You know, Michael makes his father his consigliere which, you know, he said, you can't do better than that, and you can't. You know, I think about when I was a kid, you know, and my father would give me this advice, and it was great advice. You know, both of my parents would do that. You know, there's nothing like experience, and experience from, you know, your own blood, your own flesh and blood, because it's like you guys kind of are the same. You, you know how things are going. And it's like the information that he gets from his father is what makes Michael so strong to weather the storm, like the horrible storm That's that really just starting. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways at the time that this movie is wrapping up. It's, look, I, I mean, you know, there's so much betrayal. There's so much suffering. I mean, the biggest thing that you see in The Godfather is it is suffering. It starts with a wedding. It's a, a celebration. But again, what happens? We're stuck in that office. We're stuck here in these horrible stories. We're stuck having to help people to do all these different things. And also, if you look at who's getting married, you know, in retrospect, having seen the movie, mm -hmm. we know that this is not actually a happy union. It's horrible. It seems like it on the surface. You know, it's a great celebration. But Carlo sucks. He sucks so bad. Yeah, and I mean, at the beginning of the movie, he's getting married to Connie. At the end, he's getting killed, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> this is like Carlo's involvement with the family from beginning to end, really, is how, I mean, it starts with him becoming a part of the family, and it ends with him 
leaving the family, yeah. not by choice. The way he goes, I mean, on film, that that is just incredible. Very violent. Yeah, kicking Kick. out the window. Yeah. Ooh, that's such a good well, image. Well, and it makes you think about Luca in a way, again, because they're strangling him. Mm-hmm. But it also makes you think about Polly because they're in the car. Mm-hmm. And they get him, you know, in the car. So, yeah, it's rough. And yeah. he deserves that. Carly sucks. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really well done film. We haven't even spoken, you know, about the music. I mean, we did talk about Carmine Coppola and all the great things he brought to the table Excellent in the film. Piano piece that he came up with. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the the score of this movie is instantly recognizable. Yeah, Nino Rota, very very famous very famous composer. I mean, the music from The Godfather, everyone knows it. You know, even for the people that don't know the movie, when they hear that song, they know the song. The Slash plays it. I love that. <laughs> At, like, every Guns N' Roses show, he plays, like, the theme from The Godfather. <laughs> so <laughs> good. amazing. Well, and also, Francis Ford Coppola had a real vision. He knew what he wanted for the music, and he worked with Nino Rota very very closely and said this is what i'm looking for and really i believe was the last option that nino rota came up with when they were on the way to record the score that coppola was like oh yeah this is it you know kind of it was the last thing after many different iterations coppola also wanted at the wedding there to be a real band not just actors holding instruments he wanted people to play because from a practical standpoint he wanted it so that the people are entertained there's so many people at that wedding scene you know, so it's like they'll play on camera and they'll also just play to entertain. So people, you know, stay up, yeah. you know. And it's... then the mother like sings and she's actually a famous singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that this just shows you that whole wedding scene in general really shows you why having Coppola at the helm of this movie is the right choice. Um, because, you know, he is from like a big Italian American family and he brings that knowledge in in the same way that Scorsese was the perfect person to do Goodfellas. You right. know, when we did that show, we talked a lot about how he was like, I think Christopher Witte called him like an outsider who's also an insider. You know, he's part of that community, but he was never involved in like the actual, you know, wise guys. So he he kind of was looking at it from the outside, but only, like, from, like, a a couple steps on the outside. So, with Coppola, he brings a lot of his own life experience into this, and it brings an authenticity that, to me, is is one of the things that really makes this movie great. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you feel that there's not a false note in this. You forget that the people are actors, you see these things and you just take them, you know, at face value because they're so immediate. In some cases, they are that immediate. When we see, you know, Don Vito die, you know, in the tomato garden, okay, he's there with the kid. And that was actually one take. There was two cameras set up because they didn't have time. You know, the studio wanted to cut the scene, but they did it. They did it in one take. You know, Marlon Brando came up with this idea of doing these teeth, you know, with, with the orange peel. And that's something that, that he knew from playing with his own kids. You know, he was able to work with this child actor 
who who was kind of having a rough day on the set. I was scared. Yeah. Oh yeah, he scared the so, shit out of him with the team. It's a very like uh, real scene, mm-hmm. and you know he was kind of chasing him around and pretending to be a monster. And I love that scene because it is so real. It just feels like a real thing that could have happened. Yeah. The only thing that was not in that take was a wide shot that Coppola went back and and shot, I think, like the next day or something. I mean, that's what's crazy about this, too. So Gordon Willis, you know, our cinematographer, he really is into traditional filmmaking at this point. He wants rock steady shots. You know, he doesn't really want to have a zoom or anything. He doesn't want to use two cameras. He wants it to just be, you know, this great frame that we get to enjoy. You know, Gordon Willis's favorite shot was actually when they were in Sicily and they're walking down after the wedding. That was his favorite shot. And it was like a super wide shot of like almost the entire town. Yeah basically and that was the one shot that he said what did he say it was beautiful yeah coppola said that willis was like ah finally one good shot in this movie you know <laughs> so it's it's, it's so just funny. like yeah i mean this this is like a very very talented person you know that, that you're working with and he doesn't want to have you know all of these these bells and whistles well, he I... just wants it to be pure And that's something I really liked that Coppola says kind of at the end of the film commentary is that, you know, he says that a lot of times people look at, you know, how great the actors are in this and how great, you know, the composer and how great the cinematographer. And they're like, wow, you have all these amazing people. What did you do? (laughs) And he's like, I picked all of them. Oh, yeah. And really, you know, I'm not minimizing his role because obviously his stamp is on this in so many ways. But yeah, that's a big part of it. He made the right decisions and he fought very hard for those decisions to end up on screen. Well, and he also worked with people to get the things that he couldn't get during the regular time. For instance, Bill Butler also shot this film in the times that they couldn't get Gordon Willis. George Lucas, you know, he came in and he helped, you know, with the editing. I mean, this was such a team project. Mario Puzo. Yes. You know, had written the script. And uh, it was actually set in the 70s or whatever. Right. Um, and he was like, and, and Coppola's like, no, 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 we have to go back. So then he wrote the new script, but he worked very closely with Puzo. Yeah, he wanted it to have that post-war feeling, which if they moved it to the 70s, it lost all of that. That He wanted it to have all of the original intentions of the book and coppola actually wanted to acknowledge puzo as the writer right up front so he had mario puzo's the godfather as the title card he went on to do this again when he made dracula bram stoker's dracula and And they also had dean tavalaris as their production designer you know, very, very big time there. And it's a beautiful looking film. And then you find out so many things as you go through this commentary. For instance, the scene with Kay and Michael at the wedding. Okay, there's a close shot on them. Well, guess what? That was not shot at the same time as the rest of the wedding. That was actually shot at night. They, It was lit so well that you bought that that was shot you know, during the day at the wedding. We also have that other scene with with Kay and Michael where he sees her, you know, after he's 
you know, come back from Sicily. That's something that they shot long after the regular shooting schedule. And they were able to do all of this because they had such talented people to recreate these locations. Also, we have Don Vito's office. This actually changes over time. We're introduced to it in that opening scene. Then we go back to it later in time, and it actually has gone through a remodel. So it's like these pieces are always there, and they're being developed. Like, originally, this film was supposed to be a small film. I think they said around $2.5 million, and it was like, you know, okay, we have Francis Ford Coppola. You know, we had this movie called The Rain People. He's with James Caan. Okay, yeah, okay. You know, he knows what he's doing. It's kind of a smaller thing. He's a young guy. He's Italian-American. He can bring something to the table. And the book, you know, the Mario Puzo book was not as big, but as the production went on, the book got bigger and bigger. And then also the choice to make the film a period film up the budget immediately and, yeah. yeah and so it was just like this new guy who you know doesn't really have any real credits real experience is helming this and so all of the people that he was able to get on this project were the best of the best once again it's like you get these incredible people to work with you and that's production and that's also actors and you know in terms of the actors the actors were not household names you Not know, at the time. No. They certainly became so afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a, the, the whole process of this film being made is such a story in and of itself that I, I wasn't aware of. I was aware of, you know, the acting merits. I was aware of just the, the scope of this. You know, a two and a half hour film. This is a big movie. You know, and then, you know, the second film is three hours and 22 minutes. It goes even bigger. Coppola, you know, still will shit on his own work. Even though this film is a classic, he's like, ah, oh, this could have been better. I didn't have much time. I yeah, was worried. It's an epic. Yeah. I mean, this is really an epic film. And even though, you know, we think about epic films being like these huge, like, you know, ancient times kind of movies, like, like the Ten Hur, Commandments yeah. or something. But yeah, but this is like an epic scale film about a family. Mm -hmm. And you feel that when you're watching this. And of course, it only gets built on when we move into Godfather 2. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. I really, really, really enjoyed coming back to this film. And there are so many layers that I just feel like I could go back, you know, right now even. I, I really like this, and I love being able to spend time with a really good piece of art like we talked yeah, about. This is like the quintessential crime film in a lot of ways. I mean, we did Goodfellas, which is an amazing film. We mm -hmm. did Dog Day, which I love personally. Oh, it's so good. But Godfather, not only is it like basically the cultural touchstone of of movies in a lot of ways it is like definitive and it influenced so many films that came after that dealt with the same sort of thing and even films that didn't like the epic scale of it you know the the look of it like 
Uh, it's the the way it's shot when they're in Sicily is beautiful. Yes, you know? and they actually went to Sicily, yes, which was a massive deal as well. Which they didn't want to let him do. No, and then they got all of these Italian actors, which is just perfect. Again, the authenticity in this film, talking about influence. We talked about Carmine Coppola and the piano piece that he created. I think it might be called Loneliness. And when he's playing that, we're actually seeing a montage of death. We're seeing actual crime scenes and actual dead people, which makes you think about Goodfellas and the outro to Layla when we see the body count. You know, so it's like all of these seeds that are planted in this film, you know, we see, you know, come back around. Like, you know, the absolute ass kicking that James Conn delivers on Carlo makes you think about Goodfellas and the Billy Math scene. Yeah. You know, it's like you have all of this stuff again we're, we're based on you know somewhat you know real stories i mean we have you know in mario puzo's story he tried to get as close to the source as he could goodfellas you know we have an actual mafia guy turned informant you know it's like we're getting really close to the truth when they were doing the godfather mafia people did not want this to happen they did not want this information getting out about you know about their dealings because this isn't something that had been dealt with in this much detail. Because not only do we hear about the crime, we hear about the human beings behind the crime. You're humanized. You understand, you know, what's going on. So pulling back the curtain in this film, I, I think, is just, wow. And then everybody was going to get fired. Every, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say everybody, but I mean, Coppola was definitely on the block. Pacino was on the block. Brando seems like his ass was on thin ice, <laughs> yeah. you know, and those are pretty big people, you yeah. know. And then they also said to Coppola that the film needed to come in at two hours and 15 minutes. This story is a real trip. Yeah, like two hours and 15 minutes, they said. Because he was actually editing the film in San Francisco, you know, in his own editing suite. That's where he was doing it. And Robert Evans told him, look, if this movie comes in over two hours and 15 minutes, you're coming to L.A. And then, you know, we have to cut the movie here and this is how it's going to go. So Coppola, you know, went and, you know, he tried and he tried and he, he got it down to two hours and 20 minutes and he said he took everything out of it he took everything out of it except like the the barest you know moments it's like the skeleton of the story and they sent that to la and then <laughs> the, the studio said paramount said look you took all the human bits out of it. you took all the good stuff out <laughs> You know, you got to come to L.A. We got we got to do it. And then they get there. And then what happens is they ask him to put back in all of these scenes that he originally wanted. And actually, in his first cut, you know, came out to about the same two hour, yeah. 50 minute mark. So and it's he basically restored to his original cut <laughs> because he realized that it wasn't that, you know, they wanted him to meet this criteria or he had to come to LA to edit it was that no matter what he did he yeah. was gonna have to come to LA to edit so at that point he was able to actually do what he wanted to do and make the movie he wanted to make wow. in the editing room just an incredible an incredible an incredible story it's I mean, an achievement I mean it's a yes. huge achievement and, you know, that really bears out with looking at how popular it is and how well-respected it is. Well, and the fact that they were able to go further with the next film, they had an $11 million budget, 
Francis Ford Coppola was given the freedom to do whatever he wanted, how he wanted to do it, too. (laughs) So it, it really is an experience. You know, you dive into this wonderful world that has such a scope that it feels like a miniseries or a television show. And I mean that in the very best way. And so, you know, when you leave, you know, this world, you're like, well, what happens next? Well, guess what? What happens next is The Godfather Part 2, and we're actually going to be covering that on our next episode because, you know, these films, they're classics. And, and you know, with the first two, you can't really have one without the other. No, they, they fit together so well because they're just such a, an integral part of this expansive story. Mm-hmm. And I honestly myself and i think you too i don't even really look at these as two separate movies it's kind of like you know two chapters of a mini series or something and we found ourselves asking like different questions when we're watching this and thinking oh well that gets answered in the next one you know so it was only natural for us since we actually have kind of a fifth weekend uh in march or fifth friday in march we usually release on fridays or saturdays that instead of just doing a four-part series, we we were going to do, we could do a five-part series. And it just so happens that, you know, that really set us up to finish strong with Godfather and Godfather Part 2. So we'll be back next week to dig into that movie. And I, for one, can't wait to go watch it now because we haven't. And <laughs> And we've just been thinking about it yes. the whole time we were watching this one. So, you know, if one day I had just a spare six hours, I would love <laughs> to just watch both of these together. That will never happen. Well, we actually tried that once, <laughs> and this will be a very brief story. We went to a movie theater. We went to the Arrow Movie Theater out in Santa Monica, and there was a marathon where they were showing the two films back to back. But the problem was is that their air conditioning wasn't working, and it was the dead of summer. It was mid-August. It was like we were living Dog Day afternoon Yeah. in the in the movie theater i would bring in a cup with ice and it would melt in seconds i literally was like unbuttoning my shirt people were leaving we made it through the first film a lot of people split after that and we made it possibly halfway into the second film it was a wonderful experience hope to get to do it again um but with some air (laughs) conditioning conditioning. (laughs) and this time we won't invite our friend matthew because he will hate us (laughs) We um, were almost dead. We were almost dead. He talks about this all the time still. Like, we tried to kill him or something. <laughs> like, it was, it was pretty hilarious. We but... tried to whack him out at the theater, you know? <laughs> but even still, it was still worth it. We, we felt really sad that we had to leave yes. or perish. Those were kind of our two options. Either, you know, just be like a desiccated corpse at the end of the movie or try to leave and cool off. And we ended up having to leave. But, you know, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, and again, this will be our third week where we get to talk about Al Pacino and John Cazale working together. That is one of our highlights of the second film is the extended scene time with Fredo and Michael. Um, You know, this is the, the third film. The guys did three together, and we are covering all three this month because we just love this pairing so, so much. We do. I mean, we love Al Pacino solo, too. This is our fourth Al Pacino movie in yes. a row. And I just feel a little bit spoiled because I got to talk about my favorite actor so much. 
Uh, and that's exciting. And we get to pick up Robert De Niro again as well, because we he is also in The Godfather Part Two. So as you can tell, we cannot wait to go forward. <laughs> um, this will be our final week of the Comfort Crime Month. So it was great talking to you all. And as always, stay comfy, everybody. Stay comfy.